Good evening, everyone. My name is Jenny Morgan, and I'm the board president for Baltimore Greenworks. I'd like to welcome you to the Sustainable Speaker Series. It's part of the 10th annual Baltimore Green Week. Baltimore Greenworks started as a handful of dedicated volunteers who had a passion for green architecture, sustainability, and the environment. Since that time, the knowledge, experience, and passion that we share as a community has grown immensely. What was started by this small group, now, is now known as Baltimore Greenworks, has since grown to include the efforts of over 30 local and nationally known organizations. Together, we offer the opportunity to learn about current practices being used and work being done to better our community and an opportunity to participate and experience it for yourself. We hope that you've taken time this week and enjoyed some of the 43 programs and activities we've had to choose from. Um, there's still about a half a dozen events left, including EcoFest this Saturday at Druid Hill Park, so we hope you check out our program guide available here and online at baltimoregreenworks.com. If you're a Twitter person and are live tweeting from events, um, we hope you use our hashtag Baltimore Green Week. And afterwards, there's going to be online surveys, which we hope you'll fill out so that we can have feedback so that we can continue to provide good quality programming that offers valued information that you need. We hope that you will continue to support Baltimore Greenworks. And if you'd like to, and if you'd like, I can't talk. And if you like what we've had to offer this week, there are staff and board members here who would love to discuss how you can get more involved in the organization, whether it's through volunteering, sponsorships, or good old donations. Um, we have a table outside, and you can stop by and speak to some of us. If you're a board or a staff person, will you raise your hand so people can see you? Thank you. Um, I'd like to thank our lead sponsors at Whole Foods Market Baltimore for helping make this week happen. Waste Neutral Group for helping to make Baltimore Green Week a zero waste series event, Baltimore City Paper, and 89.7 WTMD for helping to get the word out. This is the fifth anniversary of the speaker series, and I'd like to thank Dr. Hayden, Judy Cooper, and Teresa Edmonds for their assistance in making the series possible. The Pratt has been with us from the beginning, and they've been really instrumental in helping make this series such a great success. Um, this evening, our speaker is Professor Michael Clare. We're so lucky to have been able to schedule this timely discussion into our Green Week program. We'd like to thank Picador Books for sharing Professor Clare with us and assisting in arranging his appearance here this evening. Michael Clare is a defense correspondent for the nation and author of Resource Wars and Blood and Oil, The Dangers of Consequences of America's Growing Petroleum Dependency. He is a five colleges professor of peace and world security studies teaching at Hampshire, Amherst, Smith and Hol Mount Holyoke, and the University of Massachusetts Amherst. He also serves on the board of directors of Human Rights Watch and the Arms Control Association. The Race for What's Left chronicles the enthusiastic and exhaustive rate at which we're depleting our natural, natural resources and the undertaking ahead of us if we're trying to change our behaviors and survive it. Um, we'd like to welcome Professor Clare. Well, hello everyone. Thanks for coming out on such a beautiful day. And I hope that my comments will be of interest and stimulate you and maybe touch off a good discussion amongst us afterwards. Uh, and so it'll be worth your while. And first, let me say I'm very honored to be here as part of Baltimore's Green Week and to be part of a sustainability speaker series because I want to talk about sustainability and a way of thinking about sustainability, hopefully in a new way. And sustainability 
is something that I deal with all the time in my classes. I teach a class at Hampshire College called War, Resources, and Sustainability. And it's something that's very much on our mind where I teach and clearly amongst you in the Greenworks organization here in Baltimore. So this is a topic that's going to require a lot of our attention and more so, ever more so, as we go into the future. But I want to try, try this evening to present sustainability maybe in a new way or to think about it a little bit differently perhaps than you've thought about it in the past. Maybe not, but uh, we'll see. Uh, when, when we discuss sustainability in my college at Hampshire and at the other schools where I teach, mainly it comes through the lens of climate change and land degradation, population growth, and food problems. And these are, of course, very, very real and important issues and deserve our very close attention. Climate change is going to result in diminished rainfall in many parts of the world, as you know. That's going to result in diminished food production in many parts of the world. And this, in turn, is going to clash with rising population, uh, leading to widespread distress and havoc and chaos and maybe conflict. So from the one perspective on sustainability is how to reduce climate change as much as possible, how to increase food output in a sustainable way, and the other issues associated with that complex of issues, all of which I think you're familiar with. Uh, they are uh, critical and deserve all of the attention we could possibly give them. But I want to talk about another equally important dimension of sustainability tonight, and that's the matter of the, the issue of resource consumption, resource extraction, and resource depletion, and what that bodes for our civilization. Now, what I want to argue is that our current our current is not sustainable, not just because of the warming of the planet and all of the havoc and destruction that that's going to cause, certainly will, um, as you're well aware. But our current industrial civilization is unsustainable for another reason entirely. Our industrial civilization is composed of and composed of and is powered by natural materials that are running out. And the longer we try to perpetuate our dependence on these finite materials, the more likely we're going to face inevitable industrial collapse. And the more rapidly we'll bring about severe climate change. As I'm going to try to argue, the only way to ensure the civilization, the survival of an advanced civilization into the future, for those of us who are older, for our children and grandchildren, for younger people, for their later years, and to avert the most severe effects of climate change, is to undertake a systematic transition of our economy from reliance on non-renewable materials, not just energy, but everything, and replace them with renewable materials. Energy, building materials, industrial commodities, manufacturing components, 
everything. Now, I'm going to try to demonstrate why this is so, but if you take away nothing else from my comments, I hope you'll think about sustainability from this perspective. So let me try to explain how I come to this point of view. And I think we have to begin by acknowledging that we humans have created a very remarkable advanced industrial civilization over the past 100 years or so. Now, I'm sure that there are a lot of things that you'll find wrong with our current industrial society, and there's certainly a lot of things that need mending. A lot of parts of our infrastructure uh, that have deteriorated and that need to be replaced. But that said, the achievements of the past 100 years or so looked at over the course of human history are truly amazing. Most people on the planet now live in cities, are relatively well-fed and healthy compared to the time throughout human history, and we have a near miraculous infrastructure of buildings, roads, highways, bridges, tunnels, railroads, subways, ports, airports, and everything else. What's even more remarkable in my mind is that this is the case not only here in the United States and in the more industrialized countries of the world, in Europe, in Japan, but it's now true virtually all across the planet. Wherever you go on the planet, you could find modern cities with all of these modern expressions of infrastructure. This is unprecedented in human history. More people live in cities today than ever before, have access to modern homes, health and educational facilities, transportation and communication systems, and everything else. And what's also remarkable is that in the past two decades or so, the past quarter of a century, hundreds of millions of people who lived in and subsistence living agriculturally mainly in China and India and other countries have moved to the cities and lived in this kind of advanced industrial society. No time in human history have that many people succeeded in moving from an agricultural lifestyle to a modern industrial way of life. So this is quite a remarkable achievement. But let's be very, very clear about this. This modern industrial civilization, which now covers the planet, was powered and built up of the natural resources of the Earth. Oil, coal, natural gas, uranium, timber, iron, copper, bauxite, cobalt, nickel, and a host of other natural materials. This is what our civilization is made of. And to procure all these essential materials, we humans have pretty much explored every square inch of the surface of the planet, the land surface of the planet, and a lot of the water surface of the planet, in our hunt for promising deposits of the things we need. Now, we've been doing this for some time. Uh, the oldest copper mines are believed to be over 5,000 years old. But it's only been since the onset of the Industrial Revolution and the first use of coal for energy that we have exploited the planet and its resources 
with such intense ferocity. At first, the industrialized, the industrialization-driven extraction was largely confined to the northern hemisphere, to North America, to Europe, uh, to some degree to Russia, um, and later to Japan. Uh, the great coal bonanza, for example, began in England, and it's one of the reasons why the Industrial Revolution began there, and then it spread to Belgium, to Germany, and to the Allegheny Mountains of the United States. The great oil bonanza, as you may know, began in Titusville, Pennsylvania, not very far from here, really, as the crow flies, before spreading to Ohio, Indiana, Oklahoma, Texas, nearby Mexico, and a few places in Eurasia. So the original race to extract the planet's raw materials at first was confined mainly to the northern continents. But after World War II, when the great boom times and the great expansion of industrialization spread to the rest of the world, the hunt for these raw materials spread to the entire planet and became a truly global pursuit. To satisfy this post-war boom in the United States and to ensure the reconstruction of Europe and then Japan, the energy and mining companies expanded their production in existing locales in the Northern Hemisphere, but engaged in a frenetic search for new sources of supply in the Global South, in Africa, Latin America, Asia, and the Middle East. It was at this time, after World War II, that Saudi Arabia and neighboring countries of the Persian Gulf became the world's leading supplier of oil. And countries like Brazil and Indonesia and the Congo became major suppliers of copper, iron, cobalt, bauxite, and other key industrial mi minerals. As a result of all of these efforts, between 1950 and 2000 or so, the world succeeded in achieving a colossal increase in the extraction of the planet's basic raw materials, making possible the economic growth we have witnessed over the past 50 or 60 years, this biggest long period of economic growth in human history. Oil production, for example, grew eightfold, making possible mass automobile ownership, suburbia, malls, the aviation industry, mass tourism, Disneyland, mechanized farming, plastics, artificial fibers, and much, much more, all made possible by this effort. We saw a similar increase in the output of all other industrial minerals, iron, copper, and bauxite for aluminum, titanium, and everything else. This increase in raw material output uh, first fueled the post-war boom, as I said, in North America and Europe and Japan, and then in the past 25 years or so made possible the extraordinary economic growth and expansion of China and India and other countries in the developing world. So far, so good. But now comes the hard part 
of my story. All of the known, easily accessible reservoirs of oil, natural gas, coal, iron, copper, and virtually everything else that are known to us are either in development, in production, or are facing imminent exhaustion. This applies to almost everything. The world's known oil fields and natural gas fields, coal mines, iron and copper mines, and so on. These resources, that is to say, all of the deposits, all of the reservoirs that supply all of the planets, cities, and countries are either now in production or they're facing depletion. Now, they may last for another decade or so in meeting our needs, but they are not growing in output anywhere and are not being replaced with new deposits of a similar kind. That is to say, and have to be careful about this distinction, they are not being replaced by deposits that are near at hand, easy to exploit, situated in safe, friendly countries, composed in stable countries, and composed of easily refined fuels and ores, the stuff that built our current existing civilization. To give a critical example of what I mean, let's talk about oil, the single most important commodity in international commerce. At present, we get about 80% of our oil supply, about 70 million barrels a day, out of total world consumption of about 86 million barrels a day, from conventional oil fields of the sort that have long been in production, the kind where you drill into the earth, out comes a gusher of oil. The rest of the oil comes from natural gas, liquids, from unconventional oil like tar sands, from refinery gain, and such like. But 80% comes from conventional oil fields. But these conventional oil fields, most of them were discovered 20 years ago, 30 years ago, most certainly in the previous century, and many in the 1950s and 1960s at the beginning of that great search for new resources that I described and they are already at their peak of production or way beyond it and certainly on their way to decline. According to the International Energy Agency, which is the uh, agency of the, of the advanced industrial countries, these fields that provide most of our oil are being depleted so rapidly that in the next 25 years, they will lose three quarters of their total production, 52 million barrels a day. Now, to get to my part of my story, the message here, if we do not replace these 50 million barrels a day that are going to disappear in the next 25 years from existing oil fields, our civilization as we know it will collapse. It will simply screech to a halt. You cannot operate a energy-intense, high-tech, oil-powered civilization like the one we have without oil. And that is where we are headed. 
Now, the way to avoid this ghastly scenario, of course, is to begin building a new civilization that does not rely on non-renewable materials like oil and instead relies on renewable sources of energy. But that is not what we are doing. Instead, what we are doing is attempting to perpetuate the oil age as long as possible by finding and exploiting new sources of oil in areas that were previously inaccessible. Now, let me explain what I mean here. As I said, all of the known oil fields that were, are within reach today using existing technology and are not walled off by warfare are now in production or in development. But that does leave areas that previously were considered inaccessible uh, because of technological or environmental reasons. The deep oceans, the Arctic, Siberia, former war zones like Iraq and Afghanistan, degraded and undesirable petroleum supplies like tar sands that nobody in their right mind would touch if there was an alternative, and hard rock formations like shale that have to be blasted apart in order to extract a molecule of oil or natural gas. Now let me be very clear that there's a lot of this stuff left on the planet. We're not facing a geological scarcity of hard to get and undesirable petroleum or coal or natural gas or for that matter anything else. There's a lot of raw materials left. But you have to understand a few things about the remaining resources that remain. First of all, it's going to take, it's, a, it's going to be a lot harder to extract and to process this stuff than the stuff that we use now. You need to dig deeper into the earth, much deeper than ever before, go further offshore, go further into the Arctic. You have to use more force to shatter rock. You have to use more energy and chemicals to convert the stuff, whether it's oil or copper or anything else, into a usable product. And in some cases, you have to bring an army with you to protect your workers from slaughter or kidnapping or terrorism. This all costs a lot of money, pushing up the cost of extraction and the cost of the delivered raw materials. And the more we rely on these so-called unconventional and hard-to-reach materials to satisfy our existing civilization, the more it will cost us to produce, transport, and refine them. This means, among other things, that it will take more and more energy to secure the added energy that we need. So the return on energy investment in extraction will decline. You dig deeper into the earth or go further offshore or further north, you need more oil to get that oil. And the further we look into the future, the more oil we'll need to get each new additional barrel of oil. And at some point, you reach a ratio of one to one. You're using as much oil to extract oil, to extract oil out, or 
oil equivalent. You might use natural gas as they do in Canada to extract the tar sands. But you're using energy to extract energy to the point where it no longer is economic and it becomes futile. The second point to note here is that by using more energy to extract the remaining oil and gas and copper and iron and everything else, we're increasing the pace of carbon dioxide emissions into the atmosphere. And this is very important to, to grasp. Uh, if you look at the statistics from five years ago about where people thought we would be with in terms of global carbon dioxide emissions today, you know, they had low predictions, low scenarios, medium scenarios, and worst case scenarios. And we're now above the worst case scenarios. The carbon dioxide emissions are increasing faster than the worst projections from even five years ago. And why is that? It's in large part because the process of extracting our energy and everything else requires more and more energy. And as a result, we emit more carbon dioxide in the process. And this will continue to be the case on a, like an almost exponential curve. This is one of the reasons why reliance on tar sands, or oil sands if you prefer, and hydrofracking to get shale and oil is so problematic. Yes, they can provide us with new sources of energy, as the energy companies claim, but they also involve the production of much higher rates of carbon dioxide emissions or methane emissions in the case of hydrofracking than conventional oil and gas extraction. So we're not only, and of course more, more effort goes into it, so not only are we getting less energy out for the energy investment we're making, but we're also getting a faster rate of climate change as a consequence. On top of this, these unconventional drilling and mining activities, by very definition in the way I've described it, are occurring in remote areas that are environmentally fragile and especially vulnerable to the destructive effects of extractive activities and the spills and disasters that inevitably occur. Consider this, for example. 30% of the world's remaining oil and natural gas is located in the Arctic region. And why is it there? partly for geological reasons, but partly because nobody would go up there in the past. It's too difficult, it's too dangerous, it's too costly, it's too hazardous. So nature has left that as a reserve. But the more desperate we get, the greater the temptation there will be for the oil and gas companies to go up there to extract this remaining oil and gas, whatever the costs, the risks, uh, and the hazards. And uh, ironically, climate change will make it a bit easier because the uh, ice cap will melt and, and the uh, operating seasons will be extended. And indeed, uh, if you follow the business pages, you'll know that the oil and gas companies are uh, accelerating their drive to extract oil and gas in the Arctic 
That is uh, northern Alaska, northern Canada, northern Greenland, northern Norway, off the shore of northern Norway, and northern Siberia. But the Arctic is a very harsh environment for the plants and animal creatures that live there. Anything that survives up there is already at the edge of existence and has very little capacity to survive anything like an oil spill. So any disaster that might occur, like the Deepwater Horizon, will be infinitely more catastrophic than anywhere else. And, and, and when you consider that there is no capacity in the Arctic like there is uh, in, say, the Gulf of Mexico to bring in booms and, and people to scoop up the mess in the far, far north. This makes it even greater. So the more we drill in the Arctic, the greater the risk of catastrophic environmental disasters. And this is true of all of these forms of extraction because by definition they involve a harsher assault on the environment because anything that was easier has already been plundered and exploited and consumed. What's left requires more force to extract and this force will, will involve inevitably greater risk of harm. This is true, for example, in hydrofracking. This is a process that requires the explosive fragmentation of shale formations deep under the earth. And the way you do that is you build a water cannon underground and pour hundreds of millions of gallons of water into that to, to fracture the rock and open up cracks so that the oil and gas can escape. But then you're left with hundreds of millions of barrels, of gallons, of toxic radioactive water. What are you going to do with that? You can't put it into the rivers, um, into the Chesapeake, and come down here into Baltimore or any of the other cities in the East Coast. It has to be safely stored somehow, and nobody has figured out how to do that with the tens of thousands of wells that are likely to be drilled in Pennsylvania, New York State, and surrounding states to extract all of the oil and gas. And I could go on and give other examples of how inevitably the extraction of the world's last resources in these uh, frontiers, these resource frontiers, inevitably entail greater environmental destruction. So the bottom line on all of this, I think, is that to follow the path of trying to preserve our current way of life, our current civilization, by squeezing the earth harder or digging deeper into the earth, plundering the earth at a great, with greater ferocity to somehow extract what little is left is no solution. It will only hasten the inevitable collapse that we face. But that's not only... Lee, that's not even the worst aspect of this in my mind. What really troubles me about this approach of relying on ultra extraction to save our civilization is it leads to the misleading impression that this can go on forever. That if we just drill deeper, 
further north or deeper offshore, somehow technology is going to find a way to perpetuate our way of life for another decade and another decade and another decade. And this is, in my view, delusional. It's suicidal for our civilization in the end. It cannot be done, and the harder we do it, the sooner we will face ultimate collapse. But if you look at the advertising that bombards our TV screens, you'll see nothing but promises by the oil and gas industry that if we just lift our regulations and turn our eyes to the environmental destruction that's taking place and trust them to protect the environment, they will save us. They will ensure that you could continue to fill your cars with oil. And I hope that you will understand that this is delusional. It cannot be done. So, I think there's only one viable path to a future for human civilization. If by that I mean something in which people could live happily in cities uh, where there is health care and education and a good life for our citizens and a working transportation system and communication system. And that's by reconstructing our society on the basis of new materials that are renewable and new technologies that do not rely on fossil fuels but on efficiency and renewable materials. In this model of civilization, governments, cities, corporations, colleges and universities, everybody will be rewarded by replacing, for replacing obsolete fossil fuel fed technologies with new technologies based on the efficient use of non-renewable materials. Cities will be increasingly self-sufficient in food, energy, water. They'll be increasingly smog and emission free. They'll be increasingly connected by bike paths, trams, subways, advanced people movers, and other technologies that we can't quite see but are being worked on in our colleges and universities today. In other words, our cities will be sustainable. Now I hope that through this discussion, you will come to view sustainability in a new way. As the necessary, essential way to rebuild our towns and our cities and our country out of renewable, climate-friendly materials whose production poses no threat to the environment. In my mind, sustainability is not a virtue. It's not an ultimate goal. Rather, sustainability is a blueprint. It's a blueprint for the creative reinvention of human civilization, for lasting human civilization we can be proud of. It is a vision, a prospectus, that provides creative space for an entire generation or generations of scientists, engineers, architects, designers, entrepreneurs, chemists, agriculturalists, landscapers, and so on, 
generating millions of appealing new jobs. And I think it's important to reframe sustainability in this fashion as a blueprint for economic and industrial revival and reconstruction for a few reasons. To begin with, and most important in my mind as a college teacher, is that it provides a message of hope and inspiration for young people who are frightened by the prospect of climate change, what they hear about, about climate change and the destruction it's going to bring. And they despair of being able to do anything to stop it. I work with young people, college-age students, and I know that they are, they are A, very aware of the climate change danger, B, worried sick about what it will mean for their later years, and C, eager to do something about it. We need to do more than alert them to the risks. We need to lay out the work that needs to be done and create the incentives and opportunities for them to become engaged in creating a sustainable civilization for their future. And the other and final reason why this is, is so essential is that economic and climate realities are going to make it essential that we have the technologies and materials at hand to build the new civilization or to re-engineer, re reconfigure the old one when existing technologies and materials prove inadequate or dysfunctional as they so assuredly will. So to conclude, building a sustainable future is both a rational response to global realities and a way to create a hopeful and inspiring future for our children and grandchildren and, and for young people uh, to look forward to a hopeful and promising future. And I hope that you will see sustainability in this way from now on. And so thank you very much for listening to me. I, I hope that my comments now will stimulate some discussion and questions and answers, and I am happy to discuss anything I said or anything uh, about uh, the content of my new book, The Race for What's Left, which goes into much more detail than I did in my talk about the frenetic, frantic search for the world's last resources and the environmental and political and military consequences that go with it. So I'm happy to, yes. Oh. Uh, I was curious about what you're talking about, the new materials that you're going to uh, come up with somehow. Where, where are they going to come from, and how do we know they won't wind up in the North Pacific gyre like the wool based plant? Like the what? Like the oil-based plastics. Oh, like. well, there are a lot of, there, believe me, there are a lot of scientists working in this country and around the world to find ways to use uh, plentiful things that are wasted, like, uh, like agricultural waste products can be used uh, to make a whole variety of all kinds of materials. Now, if, if you go to... Um, our cafeteria, the 
instead of using plastic, we use uh, forks and and uh, and um, silverware and plates are all made from vegetable byproducts that are infinitely replaceable. So there are a lot of things that could be made out of biomaterials, or silicon could be made into a lot of things. I'm not a chemist, but there are a lot of people, very smart people, working on this problem. Uh, thank you very much. I appreciate all of your work uh, with the nation and, and so on. Uh, I'm going to start with this, that we, we go to the main post office every April 15th to hand out the War Resistor League flyers. And basically, if anyone could actually see the flyer, and I have copies here today, 50% uh, of the budget goes to the Pentagon, to military spending. And I don't know if you've ever seen, maybe you know uh, Professor jo Joseph Nevins, who wrote this article on Common Dreams, Greenwashing the Pentagon. It was June 14, 2010. And just one, one uh, sentence in here, the Pentagon uses 330,000 barrels of oil a day. Yeah, I think you got that from me. I'm not surprised to hear that. Yeah. And as you well know, that's 42 gallons per barrel. Yeah. As a peace activist, I go around constantly speaking. I was just speaking at Loyola College, and I'm trying to connect the environmental community with the peace community, that we've got to recognize, in my opinion, and Professor Nevin's opinion, that the Pentagon is committing ecocide, and we've got to take the Pentagon on as well in this issue of sustainability. Yes. Uh, well, thank you very much for your comment. And of course, I, I try to do the same thing in my work, is connect these two movements. Um, um, uh, I, I, think it, I, I think it is the drive for resources that justifies the work of the Pentagon and the militaries of other countries. and. What worries me so much is that China, as it becomes now the world's biggest user of many of these resources, mm -hmm. is militarizing its foreign policy along the same path as the United States, and that we could face a new clash, a new Cold War, new arms race with mm -hmm. China, driven by the competitive pursuit of resources with China. So in my mind, and, and this is what I, 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 I want to work on especially, is to get the U.S. and China to cooperate in the strategies that I just described, because mm -hmm. other than that, we're going to have a new world war with China over resources. Mm -hmm. But thank you for your comments. Well, thank you. I really appreciate your comments. Uh, Amy Goodman had uh, Jeremy Scahill on a few days ago, and he spoke about a foreign policy driven about driven by treating people with dignity as opposed to persecution. And I think if we had a policy based on renewable energy and treating people with dignity, we could save ourselves a lot of grief and war. Um, it's, we had the dedication of Bush's uh, library a few days ago. So it's a little off topic, but uh, two questions, one relating to Bush and the war in Iraq which uh, just curious about how, whether that was resource or oil driven. And I guess the second question is, I don't know, are you familiar with Gary Knoll? Yes. From PFW? Well, yeah. He was on today and talking about China, how they've contaminated so much of their water resources. Hmm. They can't use this water. So I think, let me just take 
the first okay. question okay. Be because of the other people, although that's interest, uh, I'm very interested in China, as I indicated. The, the war in Iraq, uh, as I, I've studied this like other people, and it, it was not driven by one factor because it was this was a coalition White House. You had George Bush, you had Dick Cheney, and you had uh, Mr. Rumsfeld who were pushing this, and they all had different agendas. I think definitely Dick for Dick Cheney, this was a war for oil, first and foremost, in my view, to, uh, to assert American control over the oil fields of Iraq. I think George Bush had more megalomaniacal vision of inserting a Western-style democracy in that region, and I think he may, at some level, he believed that he was chosen by the Almighty for this job. Um, and, and Rumsfeld had a, yet another mission was to demonstrate what's called the Bush Doctrine of preemptive war, and to you know shock and awe to terrorize. Are the people around the planet with this new military doctrine. So if you combine those three things, that's why I believe we got into Iraq. Because China and water, I'm real interested. Yeah, in what you're China and water about is that. horrendous, uh, and that's why I, I think U.S.-China cooperation on renewables and the environment is the path to averting World War Three or Four, whatever you would call it. Yes. All right, well, first and I thank you so much for asking good questions because that's the way we'll get we'll get progress made. Thank you for speaking, first of all. Um, I want to say that my ideas, I think, are completely on par with your thoughts about where we need to go with our cities and severing our tie with ties with fossil fuels. Um, and I know that we're not the only two people who have this vision. So I don't want to frame this question in terms of what we're not doing, but what should we be doing to get there faster? And do you have any examples of cities or places that are, are, have already experienced success? Well, uh, certainly we could look to uh, other states of the United States of America, like California, which has adopted, uh, it's hard to imagine, a California-style cap-and-trade system as of January 1st, and demanding that utilities uh, in, that, that utilities rely much more on renewable energy for their supply, and that they reduce their carbon dioxide emissions, and that automobiles be much more efficient. Um, and they're really transforming California. It's like the fifth or sixth biggest economy in the world. And California is having an, a, a ripple effect on the Pacific Northwest, on British Columbia. So that, that's one sign of where a lot of progress is going to be made. So because the federal government is dysfunctional, the way to make progress is to have more states copy California's example and adopt similar kinds of measures. That's what I would suggest. I mean, there's more to be said. The other thing I will say is this, is um, if you are looking at what American colleges and universities are doing, many of them, I think it's up to 750 now, have joined the American College and Universities Climate Commitment, what is American College and University President? Climate Commitment, which is to be carbon neutral by before the middle of the century. And this means that you now have 750 large universities and small colleges, mine included, that are having to transform their campus into a 
carbon neutral uh, installation. And uh, you know, what is a campus but a small city? Find out, all of them are now undertaking very dramatic radical experiments not just experiments, they have to rebuild their campus on green lines. So they're pioneering incredible new technology. About uh, the middle of the last decade, there was a considerable vogue of interest in the concept of peak oil, um, which also happened to coincide with an extreme, by historical standards, extremely rapid increase in the prices of crude oil and gasoline. Uh, and at that point, it really did look like collapse was near at hand. Uh, and, uh, you know, gas, which was a dollar twenty a gallon, is, you know, has now settled into three to four dollar range. But it has stabilized in, you know, the last three, four years. I'm wondering if you think that that was more due to the, um, the slowing of energy demand due to the uh, economic crisis or um, to these, uh, you know, sort of uh, second and secondary and tertiary technologies of recovery that are destructive, but nevertheless have, have uh, generated for, for the time being uh, greater amounts of oil and gas. And uh, do you do you think that this crisis uh, was uh, this crisis idea was ill-conceived, or has it simply been postponed? Thank you. That's something, of course, that I and many people pay a lot of attention to. It take me a minute to answer it, though, okay? Uh, we're going to sit down. So the answer to that it requires that we all understand that there's a fundamental uh, bifurcation in the world's oil industry between state-owned oil companies called national oil companies this is like Saudi Aramco, the biggest oil company in the world, and Petrovesa, the Venezuelan state oil company, Pemex in Mexico, Petrobras in Brazil. They own 80% of the world's oil reserves. Then you have the privately owned companies like ExxonMobil and World Dutch Shell, known as international oil companies or IOCs. What happened? I mean, the uh, the the private companies used to own all the world's oil and they've been driven out of the most productive oil fields in Mexico, Brazil, Venezuela, Saudi Arabia, Iran, Iraq. That's been the story of the past 50 years. Now, what have they done? What they've done is instead of investing in renewable energy, they took their trillions of dollars and invested in advanced extraction technology to exploit those few places in the world where they're still allowed to own oil. That is the United States, Canada, uh, Norway, and the UK. Not even Norway, but the UK and a few other places. But all of the easy oil there is gone. So they have perfected space age technology. The cost of putting a a uh, drilling rig in the deep waters of the Gulf of Mexico is equivalent to putting a man on the Mars, and the technology is more sophisticated. Of course, that's the only way that they can get their own oil and own it. And so they have found the way to perpetuate the oil age beyond what everybody expected peak oil would occur, if you only rely on easily accessible conventional oil supplies. And 
So they have added new fields into production in the Gulf of Mexico, in Siberia, off of the coast of Siberia, that never would have been accessible 10 years ago. And they have provided a new source of oil. Now, as I tried to explain, that makes the price of oil much more expensive. It can't go down again. If, if, uh, if the price of oil dropped, those fields become unprofitable, and they would st stop operating them, and then demand would push the price up again. So we will have a permanent high price of oil indefinitely, because that's the only way tar sands, hydrofracking, deep water, and arctic oil can be made to work. Um, I was wondering if you thought part of the problem is the disconnect between politicians and climate scientists, and if so, do you have any suggestions on how to increase the dialogue between the two? I'll give you the short answer to that, is that everybody under the age of 30 should become involved in politics and elect members of their own age group and get rid of everybody over 30. <laughs> Uh, the people now in government are so tainted, so so in, embedded in the existing economics of energy that they are incapable of breaking free of it. The, the political system is so driven by the the politics of oil and gas and and natural natural gas and coal that uh, change is not possible. And it's only when there is a new uh, generation of political leaders who put climate change ahead of everything else that there will be change. That said, that's at the federal level. I think at the local level, uh, as I said, in California and the Pacific Northwest, Massachusetts and Vermont and you know and other places where young people are very deeply involved uh, and older people as well uh, there there is dramatic change so you have to but basically we need a new generation of political leaders like the people who worked for President Obama next time around work for their own age group you know that's my personal opinion yes please Yes, I've been studying um, Peagle. I've been reading some of your book, uh, another book called The Long Emergency by James Kunstler and The End of the Old Age by Matt Savinar. And I noticed you don't have the same stark view that they do, but, I have, but it leads me to two questions. The first one being, will society at large be able to transition themselves to renewable resources before peak oil finally occurs or during mid-peak oil, and two, what can people do to make themselves sustainable during that transition? Yes, that's a very important question or set of questions. Uh, well, we've already reached peak oil with regard to affordable oil. Now, whatever new oil comes online is going to be high-priced oil. There will be no more cheap oil. Uh, the the tar sands oil, the deep water oil, Arctic oil is only profitable at $50, $60, $70 a barrel and up, which means that high prices are here to stay. 
So as I say, if, we want, if we're willing to pay that price, there is a lot of that stuff and, and overlook the environment and all that. But it will be expensive. Now, what that will do is force people and their own lives, the facts of, you know, the economic facts of life will force people to make decisions based on the price uh, to alter their behavior. Now, some people will do that out of the goodness of their heart. You know, they'll see we need to change our ways. And other people will say, I can't afford to drive to Disneyland anymore. I have to go on vacation closer to home, or I have to trade in my gas guzzler for a Prius or a, a hybrid, or I'm going to bike to work from now on. So it's going to be a combination of ethical decision making and the economic facts of life pushing people to make that transition. But the transition will have to come one way or the other. So it's both. Uh, so uh, just one last thought uh, to what we have to do to make the transition attractive for people is to make the alternatives look better and better. You know, the, uh, riding a bike, I, I wouldn't do that in places where there are no bike lanes and there's no uh, way to, you know, where bikes are, are at a, bike riding is dangerous. But uh, if you make half the street available for bikes, as in many parts of Europe and even some American cities, then bike riding becomes an appealing alternative. When you have good public transportation, people will take it. So you have to, you have to give people the carrot, the, altern the attractive alternatives. So you have to do all the thing, all those things. But your question is right on. Thank you. Um, there are still people who uh, point to nuclear as a, a energy source, and I was wondering, aside from the hazards of contamination that we that are well known. Is the same thing true of the deposits of uranium that they're becoming more inaccessible and and uh, more expensive and had to uh, get to and the energy used. Yes. Is, is, yes. Is, uranium. Uh, uranium is a finite material, and a lot of the easily accessible uranium has been used mainly making atom bombs by Russia and the United States. So it is becoming more expensive and harder to find, and some of it is in rather dangerous places. Uh, one area of the world where there's a lot of uranium is in the former French colony of Niger, uh, which in the area that's occupied by the Tuareg people. And you may know that the Tuaregs are in rebellion in the neighboring country of Mali, uh, but it's a similar a tribal eth ethnic insurgency. And there's been a lot of fighting around the French-owned uranium mines in Niger. Uh, so this shows that it's very similar kind of a phenomenon. The only difference is that uh, we and the Russians, Soviets, made so many atom bombs that as we uh, draw down the inventory of nuclear weapons, a lot of that uranium can be recycled for, for uh, power use. And that gives us another decade or so 
that's being reused. It's being recycled. But once that's gone, then there will be a uranium crunch. And do you know how inefficient that is? Yes. You know how much? Have you ever been to Oak Ridge and seen the power substation that they use to run the fusion plant? It's bigger than you are. <laughs> I didn't know that. I'll have to. I'll have to include that in when I talk about this. Thank you. Thank you. Please. I had read a book called um, Maybe One: An Argument for Smaller Families, and there was a quote in there that said something to the effect of, "Short of managing a Superfund site, the the biggest decision a person can make about their impact on the planet is how many children they have." And I'm I'm finding in talking about that out in the field. It's a sacred cow talking about population and choice to have children. It is a direct assault on people. Do you address anything about population in your book, or um, do, do you I, think it's going to remain a sacred cow? Well, I don't know what you mean by sacred cow. It's a sensitive topic. Is that what yes. you mean? Yes. Yes, in that people are still, I mean, I came from 50s era parents who had five kids. We're generationally, we're not outgrowing the mindset of you can have any, as many kids as you want as long as you can pay for them. Yeah, see, the time. problem is the following. Uh, well, it, it, population is a factor in all of this, is totally connected to the resource you're talking about. So if we're talking about North Africa and Central Asia and the Middle East, where population rates are high and water is a scarce resource and is not increasing, population growth is a very serious problem in those areas. Uh, but in other parts of the world, the matter it's not population growth that's the issue, but how many cars each new generation gets. Well, and even when you look at US citizens who uh, you know per capita or per person consume the most of Anybody on the planet? I mean, that's that's yeah, a concern well, to me when I look around and people are having four or five yes, kids. Yes, if 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 we give each of our children a car, and we have five children, give each of them a car, then the the population times affluence or times consumption drives resource uh, extraction. So you're you're right to to put it that way, but. Uh, Right now, my biggest worry in terms of fossil fuels and emissions is China, which has a one-child policy, but where people are transitioning from bicycles to cars at such a fast rate that that, that is the biggest challenge to right now. Um, and, and, and the rising income in India and China is being for the, the rising demand for energy is being satisfied with coal and oil, from and from an environmental problem that's that's our biggest problem, but in other areas where food and water is scarce, then the number of children really does matter. So from my perspective, I'm doing my best to answer your question. From my perspective, it's a matter of which resource you're looking at how much a factor population is in the equation. I hope I do justice to, to your real question. How does it work? No, did 
Oh, yes. Yeah, yeah, it works. It works very well. It has real serious problems right now as their population ages and they have fewer young people entering the workforce to pay into Social Security. They're having the same, their equivalent. They're having the same problems we're having in this country of an aging population and a shrinking working age population. Um, that's a separate question, but please. My thoughts haven't quite come together, so I may sound like an idiot. Don't worry about it. I sound like an idiot. Um, it's funny you should come along. They heard you on uh, Dan Roderick's show. And um, lately I've been thinking, wouldn't man look intelligent? Wouldn't we start being intelligent if we were just to stop procreating? Are we going to wait until... Uh, we have absolutely no resources left, and then say, duh, or something, you know. Um, or, would we, or would it make sense for us to, you know, start practicing now, uh, cutting way back on the procreating till we figure something out, and then you come along with the, the sustainable stuff, and I'm wondering, uh, how long can we stay on the earth? I mean, can we really get sus sustainability going that well That's, to stay on yes. this earth? And for how long? And how is any of us looking? How, how is, how, what good is it doing the earth for us to be on the earth in the first place? We look like to me, we're just screwing it up pretty well. You know, we're just screwing it up. If I was the earth, I would heave up. I would heave up and flick everybody off and say, yeah. goodbye, good riddance, do not come back. You're just screwing everything up, you know? So let me shut up. Uh, no, no. You, uh, thank you. And, and, and this, this goes back to the uh, woman who asked me the, the previous question. Where, oh, there you are, yes. Um, and, and, and my, I'll tell you what I think our problem is. It's, it's not procreation. As I see our problem is, I, I talked about the civilization that we've created, and um, in this society we've created in the United States the most high-consuming society. Now, I know very well, looking in this room, that all of you do not have a giant suburban house with three-car garage and an SUV or two in front and maybe a yacht in back, is that accurate? I mean, do all of you have that? How many of you have uh, own that? Yes, but, uh, but uh, you know, still, still Americans have that, and here, the pro here's the problem. There are a billion people in China and a billion people in India who watch TV and go to the movies, and that's what they see when they see America. That's what they see. I've been to those places and they tell me that, that that's the way, they think we all live that way. And as they become more affluent, they say, we want to live like you. And that's what they mean. They want to duplicate a very high-end, uh, super, uh, super resource-consuming way of life that most, even most Americans can't afford, but which is the image that we project to the rest of the world as the good life and that our advertising projects. You've got to have a three-car garage, at least, and a giant house and all of the things that go in it. 
The problem is that the planet cannot provide that to everybody. We can't even provide it in this country to everybody. So our challenge of sustainability, our challenge is to create a way of life that is satisfying to all of us, that doesn't involve three cars for every family and a yacht, and that other people in the rest of the world could look at and say, that's okay, I could live that way. Because if everybody tries to live the way they see Americans living in Hollywood, we're in very deep trouble. So we have to create, it's not procreation, it is consumption that's the problem. Well, the more people you have, the more... No, no, if you could have, this planet can, believe me, I've studied this, there is enough food and water for everybody, but not if you not if you live high on the hog, mansion-style quality of life. That is not possible. But if we, if everybody eats meat every single day, beef, that is not possible. You see what I'm saying? If we were all vegetarians, there would be no problem feeding the people on the planet. Not saying everybody has to be a vegetarian, but 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 red meat every single day, big chunk of steak, that is unsustainable. So what I'm saying is there are ways to live on this planet modestly uh, that we could share with other people. That's a perfectly good way to live. More community, more sharing, more co more closeness. Uh, but it's modest, a modest footprint on the planet. All right. Uh, Professor Clare's books are for sale out in the lobby. There are hardback and paperback editions, and he'll be signing them for you. Very happy to sign it. Thank you, everybody, Thank you. for coming. We appreciate it.